Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Happy at Work podcast. We are so excited to be joined today by Kelly Mackin. Hi, Kelly. Welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me today. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into learning a little bit about your journey. So can you tell us a little bit about how did you get to where you are today and also what inspired you to create Motives Met and have this focus on well-being in the workplace? Well, it was really my mom and my journey through ill being at work that led us to have such a passion for well-being at work and, you know, creating people first cultures and a more human work world. She is actually one of the other co-founders of our company at Motives Met. But we both unfortunately had a long history of working in really toxic workplaces, really dehumanized workplaces, and it took a toll on our holistic well-being. And that's such an important point to make because our experiences at work, our emotions at work will inevitably bleed into our lives outside of work and affect the lives of those around us because we spend on average, I think it is a third of our lives at work which is a startling statistic. So work life is life at the end of the day. But eventually I hit a breaking point and really had a wake up call that work shouldn't be this way and that I deserved happy, you know, to be happy and healthy at work that everybody does. And so that really led me on a career journey to help people create well-being in their lives both in and outside of work. And then fast forward to about 2018 and the world had started to look a little bit different. We had shifted from, you know, only caring about productivity and performance to starting to talk about culture and engagement and job satisfaction. But now we were finally talking about the most important things of people first culture and well-being and mental health and being happy at work. So we were like, this is amazing that we're using well-being and work in the same sentence. But then we were like, well, why is it still so bad? (laughs) Why is ill being at work still leading the way? And our own research that we just went out with in September of 2023, we found that only 16% of people have strong well-being at work. And we said, we want to help change this. So we took our background in psychology, mindfulness, quantitative research, and human behavior to create Motives Met. And it really started with us just asking the question, what makes a work life well-lived? You know, if we want our best work lives in workplaces with real well-being, well, we need clarity on what that actually means. We need to make that a tangible goal we can all get behind. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to get to where we want to go. That's so good, Kelly. I'm curious about how, from your perspective, you're defining um, well-being at work. Um, and I also would love the, the part that I think that is really interesting that you're bringing up is the ill being and the toxicity part, and maybe just even a little bit more around how you're defining and thinking about that. Sure. Well, the ill being piece, and this was true before the pandemic, right? Because we kind of started on this in 2018. You know, we were seeing that stress and burnout were at all time highs. 
you know, people weren't engaged at work. They're not happy. Loneliness. This is again, before the pandemic even happened, was skyrocketing at work. So when you look at all of those things, you know, burnout, um, lack of trust in work relationships, retention, right? I mean, the, the great resignation really just put a light on it in a way that never has been before, just high turnover rates at companies. That's something we've always cared about. But the world has shifted to the place where people have more options than ever before. So companies are starting to have to care about ill being at work more than they ever had before. But to answer the other part of your question around how do we then define well-being, I think a great place to start there is providing a little bit of context of why we've struggled so badly thus far to define it well. When we started on our journey, we started just asking people, you're we like, how would you define well-being? We started you know, scouring the internet, looking at company websites, doing secondary research, and we found a few things. One is there can be an issue around us just being really vague and broad when we talk about well-being at work. You know, when I asked ChatGPT, for example, it said, oh, it's around uh, having happy and healthy employees. And it's like, well, that sounds nice. It's not that that's wrong per se. I use that term all the time, but it doesn't serve us as a definition because it leaves well-being to be this kind of fluffy and intangible thing. So it doesn't help us. Second thing we found is even when people gave us more specific answers, they weren't always the right answers, let alone the best answers. You know, when I tell people, for example, that I have a company that helps people to have well-being at work, they'll respond sometimes with like, oh, so you help people have work-life balance. And I'm like, uh, yes and no. You know, is that really the best way for us to define having our best work lives with well-being? You know, maybe not. What was apparent is that people had more of a guess than a truth around what well-being was. There was a lot more guessing and not really deeply knowing what it meant. Third issue is that vital aspects of being well at work tend to go missing. You know, when we think about job satisfaction and kind of work, uh, work happiness buzzwords, things like belonging or security are commonly associated with well-being at work. But what about having fun? What about being challenged in a way you need to be challenged? What about being able to speak freely at work? These things were less likely to be brought up in the discussion around work well-being, but we discovered they were vital for many people to live their best work life. And last but not least, this was a big one. We turned to the experts. We were like, okay, well, what are all the experts in the world, the TED Talks, the books, the researchers saying work well-being is all about? And we found there is an overwhelming amount of opinion and information that is completely often contradictory. You know, one thought leader saying it's all about hustle hard, achieve your goals, become the biggest version of you. And then the other one's like, no, it's all about work-life balance and working remotely wherever you want and enjoying your life. There's research that shows the number one people re, uh, leave their jobs is because of a lack of growth. But then other research says, no, it's about a bad boss or lack of appreciation. You know, there'll be research that says the number one thing employees care about at work is fairness. But then other research shows, no, it's about autonomy or connection or whatever it is. So there can be truth and benefit to a lot of this information. But we need a way to organize, prioritize, and really make sense of it all in a way that helps us. And the type A person in me was like dying for some sort of organization here. I was like, we need, we need to kind of figure this out. So that's when we really, you know, tapped into our research background and went deep into research. A lot of R&D studies over like two years to really figure out what well-being at work is. And we discovered that there are 28 
psychological, emotional, and social human needs, what we call motives, that drive well-being at work. And these 28 motives fall into 10 overarching buckets, or motive domains, as we like to call them. So we have this really cool framework we've developed that's like colored and makes this easy to digest on our website, motivesmet.com, if you want to check it out. But for example, in the freedom domain, we have the autonomy motive, the flexibility motive, and the free expression motive. In the personal connection domain, there's the fun motive, manager support, belonging, and peer connection motive. In the meaning domain, there's passion and purpose. We have fairness as a motive and growth and all. And, and there's, you know, the way that people define these needs, it's going to be a little bit different person to person, but we named them by kind of the traits our research showed, you know, that each motive was about, if that makes sense. But here's what our research also found, that we don't all need these things to the same degree in the same way at the same point in our work life. So all of these motives matter, but they do not matter equally to each person or team. So what each of you needs most to have your best work life, to be happy and healthy at work is going to be different than what I need most. So that's why we ended up creating the Motives Met Human Needs Assessment, where people can take the assessment and uncover what are my top driving motives that I need met to be well and perform well at work today. And then, of course, our research shows when these motives are met at work, when people's top needs are healthy, everybody wins. So much good stuff happens. People are happier at work. They're more connected. They're proud. They're productive. And they're more likely to stay at your company, not only now, but they're much more likely, those with well-met motives, to say, I plan to stay for a long time. Psychological safety and trust goes up. You know, work relationships are better. People are more likely to recommend that people work at that company. And a question we always love asking in our research is, to what degree you feel you're living your best work life? Those with well-met motives, 68% of them said, yeah, I'm living my best work life, compared to only 11% of those with unmet needs saying they're living their best work life. I mean, that that's amazing, Kelly. And I um, there's so much to unpack with everything you just talked about from, I love the... the um, the kind of paradigm, the model that you created around the different motives, the way that you assess for those motives. Um, real quickly, just to better understand the assessment piece, is it an organizational assessment? So are, are you know, uh, those working leaders within an organization assessing whether or not the organization ha has the capability and is equipped to help deliver on these motives for the individuals? Or is it, are they individual assessments to really see what I what my motives are and to see whether or not that's a match within the organization. How does that work? Sure. No, it's it's an individual assessment. So, you know, it's even right now, if you just wanted to understand how can I better be empowered to create the work life and the career I want, you can go take the assessment. But it's extremely valuable in companies for leaders and managers to have their employees take the assessment and uncover what matters most to the people I lead. What needs do I need to meet to make sure they actually want to stay here? To take a personalized, individualized approach, not a one-size-fits-all approach, because that is part of the problem. But then part of the process and the platform we've developed is, yeah, it's a really good idea to measure these motives. To what degree do your employees feel that they're thriving, coasting, suffering, or drowning? You know, let's get some simple well-being analytics here that we can track over time and, and start having those conversations. 
So I have a quick follow-up to that because as we look at um, organizations and, you know, we're hearing about the demand for employees to come back to work full-time, you know, five days a week. And we have this huge debate happening within uh, among employers around hybrid versus return to work uh, versus fully remote. Do you have any particular thoughts on just that particular question around is there one that's a better fit for others? Or do you think workplaces need to be very flexible and offering different options based on the different needs of their different employees? Well, our research, our research shed some light on this in an interesting way. One of the big takeaways from our research is that you have to learn to live in the tension of these needs well, because motives will hold friction with one another. So again, if you can kind of imagine the framework I was uh, explaining where there's 28 motives kind of plotted around a wheel, if you will. Motives that are closer together are more highly correlated and motives that are across from one another are less likely to be correlated. So it's not that they're necessarily opposites, but there is more of a dynamic tension that exists between them. And this tension can happen internally. If I have two needs I'm trying to meet at the same time, that are, you know, in different places. If I want to use my personal strengths and my natural abilities, but I also want to grow and be challenged, that's on the other side of the circle. But of no surprise, the flexibility motive and the peer connection and belonging motive are on different sides of the circumflex. It's difficult to satisfy both of these needs at the same time for an individual, on a team, or in a company. But the point is you have to learn how to accept that not all of these motives are going to be thriving equally at the same time. There's going to need to be compromise. There's going to need to be tough choices. But it's about learning to know yourself and the people at your company best. Really know them. So have the conversations. Look at how many people have peer connection as a top motive versus flexibility. And start to ask your employees how they feel about stuff. And that sounds like common sense. But there is so much of that that does not go on. So yes, there is no right answer, unfortunately. The, the degree that motives can be met, are going, it's going to be unique for each company and team. So it's about going through the process, the pathway we've outlined. And that's what we always say. We call our, our approach a no BS approach because we're not going to sit there and tell you this is exactly what you got to do. There is a lot of BS out in the world that tells you that. There's a lot of noise that wants to tell you this is the answer. We say we don't have the answer, but we have a path you can follow to get to the unique truth of what well-being means for you. That's really good. And you're so right around the, the idea of so many of us haven't spent the time to really understand our own motives, right? Or understand what we really value or what's really important to us. So any opportunity, I think, for us to offer employees that, that, aware, that self-awareness I think is just a really important gift, right? Because then you can find what matches in terms of your the place you work. So that's that's really neat. So kind of building off of what Tess was asking about um, last with the last question, just I wanted to talk about a little bit more about the future of work. So curious about your thoughts around how work well-being and the future of work need to evolve. Um, and, and what you what insights you have about that? Well, one thing we've consistently seen through research is that employees now more strongly than ever believe that well-being at work is a right, not a privilege. And that has always been the truth, but now people really believe it, they demand it. 
And it, it, you know, it's shown time and time again, you know, asked in different ways throughout the research. But companies now, smart, innovative companies are getting that and they are taking it seriously. You know, there's roles now that didn't exist just a few short years ago, like chief happiness officer, chief well-being officer, head of employee connection or head of purpose at the company. So more companies are getting on board with the fact that this is a priority constantly. When I work with leaders and talk to them, they're like, well-being is one of my five pillars I'm supposed to do, but how do I do it? So I think that's going to be the next step is so many people now understand that they need to do it. And, and a lot of great leaders now want to. They really want to do that. They want to have a people-first culture. But I think the difficult part becomes, again, then the how, right? And that's, that's definitely something we've tried to help with. You know, we're researchers at heart, but we go, okay, let's take those insights and how do you make them actionable? How do you build tools and processes and steps that can actually help people take action? And I... I Constantly when I talk to leaders, that's what they're looking for is how do I actually take action in this area now that I know it's important, now that I get, if I'm head of HR, now that my CEO is starting to understand <laughs> that it's important, how do I do that? So that's kind of the big thing I've seen. So I want to ask um, a little bit of a follow-on to that as it relates to conflict in the workplace, or when you think about how these motives and how people like to work and what kind of drives their well-being and happiness and how that intersects with when there are challenges, when there are high stakes events that take place, um, you know, if there's a conflict between team members, how, how do you see, do you, or have you seen research that looks at the intersection between the way people the environment they need to work in, the way they need to work, and then when they're kind of pressed up against a challenge, are they in a better space to deal with the challenge? What are what are some of your thoughts on that? Well, I think one of the key things we've seen is that when people have well-met motives, they're going to be more likely to show up as a better version of themselves at work. So when it comes to, you know, different challenges at work, being resilient, being positive, that's just going to help everybody, right? That's going to have a trickle-down effect. But sometimes people are going to have to accept the fact that their motive isn't going to be well-met in certain circumstances. Like you're saying, hey, I might, for example, flexibility is one of my top motives. I am a social people person, but I get that in my life outside of work. So to be honest, connecting at work is not a top driver for me at all. But someone else I work with might have that as an absolute top driver. And their social well-being might depend on having some of these conversations at work to going to outings, to doing off-sites. So the question becomes, how can I be a little bit of a team player and go, okay, I can have a good attitude. I can go out of my way to maybe ask simple questions, have a conversation with somebody that could go a long way. So it's starting to create cultures of compassion where people start to care about the collective well-being and not just their well-being. And that means the, the well-being of the leader. That means the well-being of the team. Because a big thing we drive home is that well-being at work is co-created. It happens when individuals and work peers and leaders show up for themselves and one another in meaningful ways to keep motives healthy. If you think about any motive, fairness, achievement, future success, the degree that need is going to be met is going to be dependent on other people at work. So it's starting to kind of create this other-ish mindset. Yes, I need to care about my motives and keeping them healthy, but it isn't just about me. We all got to work together and I can give a little and then maybe you can give me a little. And if we can all support each other that way, 
everybody doesn't have to love each other. We have this saying, we all have to give a crap. We don't have to love one another. Saying there are, there are sometimes difficult work relationships. Let's not pretend that it's going to be perfect. But if we can have the respect that we spend such a great portion of our time at work, you deserve to be happy and healthy. I deserve to be happy and healthy. I don't need to be the reason you don't feel you belong at work. I don't need to be the one to stifle your growth or dim your passion, right? If we can have that mindset, then we're going to be able to work through these challenges a lot more. We're going to be able to give a little and take a little, and that's going to create a really powerful dynamic. I like that so much, that idea that we're kind of all responsible, right? That we all play a role in helping other people have well-being at work. That's really, that's awesome. So some of the people who are listening might be really curious on your perspective on practical ways that they could improve their own well-being. So I was wondering if you could give any tips, strategies, advice um, for pe how people could really improve their well-being at work. Absolutely. One is that I think sometimes we, we, in our minds, feel like we have to do big things to make an impact. And, and I'm not going to lie. Sometimes meeting your needs, meeting your motives is big things. It's scary things. It's hard things. So I will not say that that's not true. But a lot of times it's simple things. It can be the smallest things. And mindset is a huge part of meeting motives. We say, you know, meeting these needs happens in both thought and action. So there are sometimes just really simple things you can do and asking yourself the question, what is one small thing I can do next month that's going to help elevate one of my needs? Just asking yourself that question can be huge. For example, again, flexibility is one of my top motives, and I have started to carve out two no meeting days a week. That has made a huge difference for me and having flexibility, more freedom for me, small thing, big impact. So that's one thing. Second thing I'll mention is that we uncovered 10 dream killers, as we call it, that really threaten our dream of a better work world, of us all having our best work lives and workplaces. And we don't have time to go through all 10, unfortunately. But one of them is that we can take much more of a passive and reactive approach to our well-being than a proactive and preventative one. We wait until things are so bad. So we're burnt out. So we're miserable at work. So this work relationship is just in the toilet to do something. When instead, if you could sit here and really identify what matters most and start to get strategic about it now to keep it healthy, that is going to be huge for you. Because we say it's not always about, oh, I'm miserable. So now I need to kind of go figure out what I need to be happy. You know, your work life is going to be constantly evolving. Well-being isn't a destination we get to where we get there and we stop. It's something that you need to tend to consistently. Another dream killer I will mention is that we don't always prioritize our health and happiness at work the way we need to. You know, if you had asked me when I was in the depths of misery at work years ago, if my health and happiness mattered, if my well-being mattered, I would have said, of course it does. But underneath, I didn't really believe it did. I didn't believe it could. And as I, you know, I work with so many people when they, when they tell us their stories behind these needs at work and we'll constantly hear, yeah, I just felt like I didn't deserve it yet until I'd gotten to a certain place. Or I just felt so stuck that I couldn't do anything. Or I'm the breadwinner of my family. I have a good job. Shouldn't I just be happy enough? You know, there can be all sorts of reasons that we don't end up prioritizing well-being. And so you really have to look at, even if you're consciously saying you do, what are your unconscious commitments? Yes, I care about my well-being, but my family's well-being comes first. Well, how are you going to be able to tend to their well-being if you don't tend to your own? 
Yes, my well-being matters, but my team well-being matters. Yes, it does. But as a leader, you have to care for your own well-being too. So really making the commitment to yourself that it matters and that you need to prioritize it is huge. Well, I have to say, Kelly, those are um, strategies that I feel are not just good for work, but honestly, as a mom of two boys, <laughs> they're so important, uh, you know, strategies for life um, to just manage your well-being. I, um, you know, have I came into this role that I'm in now about a year and a half ago, and it took me a while to adjust to Zoom culture and being on eight to 10 Zoom meetings a day. And finally, I had to block out my calendar and just be like, I need at least two afternoons to actually get work done. But it, it took me about a year before I, I started to prioritize that for myself. So um, perhaps yeah. if I had taken your assessment, I would have known what I needed sooner. So I appreciate yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just been a, an amazing half hour. Thank you so much for joining us. I think um, the work and the research you're doing is, is so important and um, impractical as far as the way that we can think about well-being at work, not just from a conceptual perspective, but actually from a real tactical, practical um, perspective as well. So thank you, Kelly, for joining us at the Happy at Work podcast today. Thank, Thank you, you so for much. having me. It's been so fun chatting with you both. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.